0: This week on the podcast I sit back down with Roger Bretherton to reflect on the last month as he's engaged with this Bart Ehrman challenge. Essentially Roger has gone away on Audible and listened to Bart Ehrman's The Great Courses series on how Jesus became God. Roger's written notes on this, he's thought about this and he's allowed this to settle within him and then to try to begin to understand if it affects his Christianity at all. really interesting conversation and i'm sure you'll see towards the end of it we really get into some new territory where we're able to begin to pin each other down a little bit more i have a lot of time and a lot of respect for roger and the fact that he's willing to engage like this and to be openly challenged like this is something that i actually find to be exceptionally rare when engaging with christians roger is not like any other Christian I've ever spoken to, and it's really refreshing to be able to have these dialogues with him. We have many more planned, and I'm sure you, the listener, will be looking forward to those as much as I am in the coming months and hopefully years. For those watching this on YouTube, I'd ask if you'd hit like, subscribe, and then hit the notification bell. And for everybody, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination. And I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam and I'm joined once again by Roger. Roger, how's it going?
1: Hello Sam. Yeah, really well, thanks. Good, good to be with you. Good to see you. Um, are you drinking tonight, by the way?
0: I am. I am on a little bit of whiskey. It's a little bit. Like it looks like quite a big cup, doesn't it? But it, it isn't really, <laughs> really. But yeah, having whiskey. What, what about you?
1: So yes, yeah, so I I'm um, I'm on Brewdog tonight. And you know there was a fly flying around my room earlier on. It's landed in my beer. So there we go. That sucks. There was a fly in my room. Literally.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. So parking, parking beer and flies aside, um, we're going to basically look at the sort of ermine challenge that I set you um, last time, or really you set yourself. And I just went, all right, let's see what happens. Um, so I thought it'd be good just to jump straight in. Roger, if you wouldn't mind kind of recapping, help us understand what happened, where you got to. Yeah. Well, how, how's it been?
1: Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so so well, shall I explain uh, the way I understood it? and then we'll see. We'll see if that vaguely resembles what you thought I was going to do over the last month um yeah and you're right i mean you you i mean you're the person who sort of persuaded me more and more that i really need to pay attention to bottom um, but in terms of exactly how i've done it over the last month i kind of came up with that um so so what i've been doing for the last month and by that i mean 20, 24 days so i um i basically downloaded from um uh, uh audible let's let's advertise okay from audible the great courses um set of lectures by Bart Ehrman um, called How Jesus Became God, and um, I've listened, to, so, so basically there were almost exactly 24 days between last time we recorded and now, and almost every day I've listened to um, half an hour lecture, and I've spent about half an hour just sort of writing notes about what I, what I made of it. Um, going in, kind of right from the beginning, really, that my understanding was that that would be quite challenging. I haven't really listened to him in depth, although I've seen little bits of him here and there on on YouTube. Also, being aware that people like you, who have deconverted or deconstructed or whatever we want, whatever we whatever term we want to use, often will refer to Bart Ehrman as one of the sort of big influences on them in terms of really beginning to make them wonder if the New Testament can be trusted. You know, if we really can view the gospels as worth worth kind of taking at face value or or even taking generally um as true so i went into it with with that in mind um and I, I mean just as a kind of skipping to the end i i really really enjoyed listening to it and um i i think that that's one of the i mean we'll get into the details of this in a second but i i it made me realize that there that some of the things I most enjoy listening to are when I'm listening to people that I don't necessarily agree with. So I actually, I, I, in the end, I probably don't go with um, and in in a lot of his conclusions and we'll talk about that, but nevertheless, I absolutely love the way he sets up the lectures, the way in which he sort of, it's like watching Sherlock Holmes in action. He's setting up the questions step-by-step and then sort of delivering the answers to you as you go along. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And, um, Uh, I'll I'll sort uh, I'll summarize for your listeners in a moment exactly um, what I what I found from it and and what I think he says. So we'll we'll get to that in a second. Um, But I wonder before we get to that and before we actually start talking about the content, one of the things I'm really aware of is that I approach these lectures probably in a really different way than you approached his view of things so I, I might have got this wrong but my kind of understanding is that you probably came across em um, and already at the point where your previous construction of christianity was starting to wear thin it wasn't looking quite so convincing to you anymore and you probably went to it with lots of questions about what are alternative ways i could look at this and then he sort of fitted into that whereas i'm very much coming to it as uh, right now you know i have had moments of sort of Deep skepticism and doubt about my Christianity. But right now I feel pretty content with it and quite happy with the expression of it. You know, that might change, but that's where I am at the moment. Um, and it's really different to approach it from that perspective. So, really different to sort of approach it intentionally with curiosity, thinking, I know this probably isn't where I'm at right now, but I'm interested to know. So, so what what I thought it might be nice to know from you right at the start, really, is um. I kind of went into this because I know it meant a lot to you and kind of you sort of you know it really kind of shook you and changed the way you view things and I'm just wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about what exactly was it about Erman's thinking that really really kind of landed for you and really made you think yeah this this, this sort of really changes things for me I
0: had a whole kind of like firework display out the back ready to go off when you said that you were then an atheist, but I'm going to have to cancel that now, which is that cost me a lot of money. I'm not, I'm not particularly happy. Um, So I think it's important to frame how I came to Ermine well, and then we can understand why it had an, an impact on me. So, um, essentially i came out of christianity because i began to realize that christianity could be viewed in in a different way to the sort of traditional um conservative framework that it served upon you know that it's literally true it all happened the way it's meant to happen the bibles aren't aren't wrong any the bibles the, the the books of the of the bible aren't wrong in any way and we can trust the the prophecies we can trust what they say they're all trying to do their own thing there's no sorts of um inconsistencies in how jesus is betrayed and actually you can just harmonize those um and sure i mean i could say that some words aren't quite the same or some bits are wrong here and there but in in general the bibles are um are correct i keep saying the word the bible doesn't make any sense anyway um essentially that's that's how i came at it and i think when i came to the position where i realized that this world could be viewed in a very different way there are the, the way that we use heuristics to map ourselves and the world onto us and us onto the world, there, there, there is the ability for us to want to try and find connections, to find, find answers, solutions, to narrate our lives in such a way that kind of gives it um, the meaning and purpose that it needs to have for us to be able to function within society um, to any sort of meaningful level and um, I came to Bart um, and um, in this position like okay well I know the conservative story of the Bible very very well having gone to Bible college having studied for many years preached etc um, what would somebody say about the, the the truth claims of the Bible that I would, I would claim to be real you know that Jesus did literally die and rise again that we can know that from the gospel accounts and from how Paul writes about him later on on, um Or earlier, but yeah, you know, Paul, Paul writes about that later on in the New Testament in terms of the chronological order of the books, um and yeah, basically, like, how can we begin to grapple with these things in a different way? Like, was there even a person Jesus? Is that made up? Did he actually die? Did he just swoon and pretend to die? Was he buried? What did he? Did he? Was there a tomb? Did he get risen from the dead? Do people actually interact with a physical person? Was it more of a sort of psychological state? How did this? group of people begin to then sort of analyse this this message of this person that, that's supposedly come back. How do they then map that onto him being God? And then that God figure kind of coming into the 21st century as, as time moves on. Uh, so that we today stand up in front of church proclaiming the truth that Christ is king, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's how I came at it. I came at it trying to grapple those things. And, and the reason it had such a big impact on me is because it helped me to see that even if Ehrman is wrong, the conservative framework I held is incorrect. It doesn't make sense. It can't hold the things the way that it, I used to think it could, and so no matter where I go with it, the sort of even even the sort of middle ground needs to be a ground of almost agnosticism because I can I cannot know from the gospels whether Jesus was actually buried. For instance, we 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 can we we, we can assume that the gospels are correct in their in their narrative of that, but actually there's lots of evidence that suggests that they aren't, and I'm reading a great book on that at the moment. There's, there's there's, there's so much that we can't hold for certain. So what Ehrman did basically was it's almost like he planted the dynamite stick and then blew the lever and it all blew apart. And lots of people will go, actually, let's get those all back together. It's fine. It's okay. But what that made me go is I don't necessarily land where he lands on everything, but I mean, he's much smarter than me, so maybe I should. But, but um, what I do land at is a position where I'm much more open to listen to what other people say and then to try and weigh the evidence weigh the reasonings and go well that can't make sense because of this that can't make sense because of that this is a possibility this is why it's a possibility and begin to not not almost reduct the gospels so that we can have like you know just just the red letters and nothing else or whatever like trying to to, to come to a position where I'm like this is the most likely explanation with what we can see and the historical arc of it so that must be the nearest we can get unless something else comes in to help me understand it more fully and that meant that I don't believe that Jesus is God um, or that he rose from the dead so that that's really what Erman did that was so challenging um, I hope I explained that well.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's that's really helpful to me because because the I mean the other thing just to kind of check with you is when when I was listening to Bart Ehrman, um, I, I mean he never says this, but I often felt that he is definitely targeting a very sort of certain literal view of the Bible. So that seems to be the main thing he's deconstructing as as he goes along. So he'll, um, I, I mean, I, I I'm struggling to think of examples because I think we're probably going to talk in a bit more big picture in a second, but. Um, but, but it does seem to me that that he will go to a, a very, very specific verse in the Bible and then compare that against another verse in the Bible. And sometimes when I'm sort of looking at some of the comparisons he does, I, quite a lot of them I wouldn't have viewed as contradictions, even when he's given them to me. That They're only contradictions if you think the Bible is you know literally if you think the bible is kind of like a camcorder that was filming jesus as he did what he did and therefore you know if there's footage missing that's a big problem whereas from my point of view if it's a story you know if if he did live for 30 odd years and we can read his entire life story in 20 minutes there's probably a lot missing you know there's probably a lot missing from those kind of accounts um but, but it does seem to me that that's it, it is that kind of Christianity you're describing that's really his target quite often. And, and weirdly, I sometimes almost felt like a lot of what he says boils down to you can't read the Bible this way. You know, no matter what you do, this is not an accurate way to read the Bible. So so to read the Bible, asking the question, is this literally true? he he's saying really that's the wrong question and weirdly i'd kind of agree with him on that. so it's kind of like yeah if you're just going here's an objective historical bullet point fact by fact thing that jesus did i i do think we're probably missing the point if we read it in that way
0: yeah so a great analogy from um how jesus became god could be um when when was or did Christ become God? So um, when the early disciples, did they believe that it was some sort of at his resurrection he became God? Was it at his crucifixion? Was it at his baptism? Was it at his birth? Was it throughout eternity? And all the gospels, and he lays it out really well in the book, have their own way of almost dealing with that question because the authors yeah. don't necessarily all, all, all agree or know when Jesus became divine. Um obviously John very much suggests it's, it's it's been a eternal thing. Um whereas other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, suggest different timings depending on how you read them. So it's 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 things like that. Like you you would you you would almost um I think a lot of people kind of come to the gospels, slap all four of them together, we create an amazing like Christmas story, we create some sort of like passion narrative around the re- death and resurrection of Jesus and and it is just like an, an, an a culmination of different events in different gospels to kind of present like this is who Jesus is, this is what happened at christmas this is what happened at easter um this is what we believe these are his you know this is a bit from matthew a bit from luke you know slap them together they're kind of the same teachings but not quite um and this bit from john's kind of cool so let's get that in as well about some blind person seeing after being spat on um so like it's, there's just like different di- different things that we kind of pull together to kind of create a a, a christian a christianity so yes there is a literal interpretation but i think what's interesting is he's challenging the reader or the listener in, in your case um to actually go in and realize that the gospel of four separate accounts deliberately written with a theological agenda to present something in a specific way and you can then try and understand the sort of individual theological outworkings of the author or group of authors that, yeah, Basically collected and annotated this 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 life story of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, so yes, I think he does very much challenge that sort of literalist accumulation of events into a Christian narrative. And he goes, well, that doesn't make sense anyway. Um, you can still believe in Jesus, but it, you should view the Gospels as four separate accounts. And then yes, even then I think either he then carries on to kind of um, push it even further and go, they don't they don't line up. So can you really trust the sort of stories they're saying? And if you can't trust them, which one are you going to trust? And you can't trust the other three, how are you going to live your life? And it's, it, it's almost like the sort of um, secondary questions that he's not tackling, which is where the dominoes almost like he kind of presents this thing, shuts the door, then behind the door in everyone's heart, all the dominoes fall down. like, Oh crap. Okay. Well we need to try and pick those back up somehow. Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, sh- shall I j- just, because we're going to get into the details of it in a second, are we? Well, shall I just kind of summarize so that your listeners understand what we're talking about? Shall I summarize the lecture series as quickly as i can so this might take a few minutes just for me to sort of explain what his kind of central narrative is um and and then we can go wherever you like in terms of talking about it and discussing it from there um sure that sound good yeah Yeah. and um also you know if i get it wrong or you feel i'm sort of misrepresenting any of it we can we can um we can discuss that too so um so, so, so if I were going to sum up what he's trying to do in, in this series of lectures, and he doesn't frame it like this, actually, he fr- he doesn't frame it like this. But I think this is what it is: is that he's trying to say if if Jesus wasn't God and he never claimed to be God. So, Ehrman's agreed that there is this historical person called Jesus. He may not be who he's generally been taken to be, but. If we can't say that he was God and that he didn't claim to be God, how is it that the entirety of Western history has been affected by the belief that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was God? And um, he starts in a place that I'd never really thought of starting. And in some ways, there's something a little bit sneaky about him at various points like this. But he starts with kind of Greco-Roman sort of God-men in various different ways. And he talks about how there's basically three ways in the Greco-Roman world that would make the idea of Jesus being God or being a God comprehensible and understandable. One of them is the sort of traditional, um, you know, Zeus and Hermes um, come down for a little visit to have a look around as human beings for a bit, so it's like gods become men temporarily. Uh, the other one is that, that gods in some way impregnate a woman, there's both Greek, Roman and Jewish stories about that, so you end up with these sort of divine beings who are sort of born on earth but nevertheless they have godly heritage somewhere um and then and then the third one is the idea of you have these sort of divine beings that have always been divine and then somehow become embodied in the world um in some way and he basically argues that all those three paradigms in some way can be applied to jesus and so he's saying um this i sometimes i think sometimes in in the christian world it, uh, by which i mean the kind of church world really you get the impression that this idea of jesus being god and man is absolutely unique and no one's ever thought about it and it's basically we own it it's ours um but but he's really clear no this kind of idea has been knocking around in all kinds of different ways throughout western history and even if we go to the east you know you, you get into hinduism it's there too but that that's a whole other story And so so he he then goes to the Gospels. Uh, No, he doesn't go to the Gospels. He goes to the earliest sources we have um, about Christianity and and effectively he applies the kind of um, historical rules to it, um, which we might get a certain set of historical criteria, which, long story short, ends up with him really saying that all we can really know about Jesus is that he was probably an apocalyptic preacher um, in first century Israel, as it is now um that he was proclaiming um the the end of the world effectively and gathering people to him to live a lifestyle that was appropriate to be ready to enter into this new kingdom when the end would come and that ultimately he falls foul of the law um that judas that judas betrayed him not by revealing his location but probably by giving away his teaching to the authorities that jesus thought he was the messiah and was going to be the king of this new kingdom that was about to arrive that was a political threat, and that's effectively what led to his crucifixion, which I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, that bit, actually. But but his argument is basically we can't know very much about Jesus, really. That's kind of the part of it. So what happens as you look through the sort of historical records sequentially, what gradually happens is that um, if he just died, he would have remained a Jewish rabbi of an obscure sect that was quite nice um, but ultimately, sort of failed. But it's because he becomes to be believed to be God um, that um, that 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 basically he becomes something more than that, and becomes applicable, and goes beyond Judaism, becomes its own religion in its own right over time. And um, I, and so so Ehrman's sort of first linchpin in that he says basically no one would have thought Jesus was God if people hadn't started to believe that he'd risen from the dead, and and Ehrman's basic approaches all we can say about that is that his disciples believed it so we can't say did it happen or not there's lots of reasons perhaps to believe that it didn't happen in the way that that the gospels describe but what we can say with certainty is that his disciples believed it um he then he then does a really there's a whole fascinating lecture that we may get into just on delusion and hallucination and how people come to believe things that that may or may not be true but he said certainly a select number of jesus disciples believed that he had died but had been risen again you know that he'd made appearances to them and so he says, so gradually over the period of time, as you look at the historical records, what you see is this sort of sequential development of when then did Jesus become God? Um, so the initial idea is he becomes this is what you were saying a moment ago, becomes God at his resurrection. So he's adopted by God at that moment. Uh, a, a later idea is he he becomes um he he becomes divine at his um baptism. Another idea, then it goes back to his birth. No, he, he sort of was was adopted at birth. Um, and then what what kind of moves on later is then kind of we get to john scott's and know he was always divine right from the beginning so he's always god there's a sort of bit in the middle so there's a bit where he argues some stuff from paul in philippians where he says in philippians 2 paul is basically talking about jesus was a divine being some kind of angelic being that then became incarnated and then became fully divine But then when you get to John's gospel, which seems to be the latest uh, sort of source we have in the Bible anyway, um, you definitely get this sense of Jesus has always been God and he's just sort of having an incarnated earthly existence for a bit. And then going back to God through the resurrection and the ascension at the end. Um, And then just to finish off, he then says what happens is um, then following the first century into the second, third centuries, particularly once Constantine um, converts to Christianity we then have these various really, really strong movements and debates and all kinds of characters in the early church. You start to argue very, very forcefully for it until really around the Council of Nicaea, which you, you can tell us what date that is because I've forgotten, but it's 4th century sometime, isn't it? I
0: think it's 325, um, I think.
1: but 325. I think so. Um, which, which that seems to be the moment at which Jesus's position as God-man man, as both absolutely God and absolutely man finally gets totally established and really starts leading to the development of the notion of the Trinity at that point. That's uh, when that that sort of thing lands. Um, so that so that's my summary of... <laughs> I'm <it's, laughs> doing my best to summarise the whole thing, but, but it's basically, you know, we, we've got this apocalyptic preacher who people believe has risen from the dead. And then by a series of inferences, bit by bit over time, he started to view as God. That, That seems to be his sort of, his thesis basically.
0: I think in in I've so not listened to this, the lecture series. I've, I've I've read the book. Well, I actually listened to the book as well. I read and listened. And I did both. Um, and um, it, it, there's he also looks a little bit at the sort of Gnostic texts. And um, did he go into that much at all in the lecture series?
1: Yeah, that's right. So we have skipped that bit. So, yes, yeah, so we spent a bit of time on, on Gnosticism. He, he he also covers lots of the kind of other interesting areas that I never really sort of thought about too much. So like the Aryan controversy in terms of what, what that was all about. And that's why the Council of Nicaea had to get everybody to agree who Jesus was, because otherwise Christianity was going to split. And Constantine was was very, very keen that, that Christianity was a unifying force for the um, empire yes yeah, so he talks about and then he also talks about um the the martianite heresy as well so martian's kind of idea that the god of jesus and the god of the old testament were two different things so he goes through a few of those sort of uh, other I, I guess you might call them you know they're sort of lost christianities on some level sort of you know versions of christianity that are really really interesting and really informative but um they're not part of that central story as such they're kind of like versions that get ejected along the way.
0: Interesting. He's got another book called Lost Christianities, which is literally delves into this section a lot more. Sort of the different sorts of um, Christianities that were ar- arising at the same time as the now Orthodox Christianities so when that was yeah. a proto-Orthodox Christianity, and how people were trying to interpret um, Jesus and what it meant, and and how we can also see the outworkings of that in the different sort of epistles that we have. So uh, one, two, three John, for instance, um, one of them more than the other two, kind of really goes into the fact that Jesus was a physical. A physical person wasn't just some sort of um kind of a airy fairy thing that people almost couldn't quite touch and kind of just pretended to almost die as as other christianities um began to sort of say this is true so he kind of um interestingly by basically pulls pulls a thread and says you know what makes the christianity that came to the fore the, the actual christianity that is true like why why are the other christianities not true why is this one actually true and um is it anything more than just chance that, that the christianity we have today is the one that people believe rather than a more sort of um yeah, gnostic version of christianity or, or whatever um docetic or there are many different forms i think um, of different yeah and different christologies like when did jesus become become god it's it's fascinating okay so that's thank you that's really really helpful and kind of guess where do you want to take this then so i could kind of ask you questions you could ask me questions we could dive into it um you kind of finished the, the very very first section by saying that um you enjoyed it but actually you, you don't feel like you've come to it at a time when it's particularly challenging so what w- what about what about what barman said then hasn't challenged you and and why do you think that you're still willing to um not hold christianity because that you know you can hold christianity for a number of reasons like what 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 is it that that hasn't been said that would have needed to be said to kind of make you go oh actually this is quite challenging like is there anything that could have been said that would have done that or
1: would it always have been an easy one yeah that's yeah that's a really good question so um well, should we uh, perhaps, one of the way, uh, perhaps one of the ways to begin is perhaps to talk about um, this notion of Jesus as the apocalyptic preacher, because I think that that's kind of very foundational. This idea that really what we have on the Gospels is this sort of accumulated pile of stuff, much of which can't be trusted as history. Like that's kind of really his view and that we have to sort of boil it down and. Um, to, to that kind of thing because that that's a really really challenging idea and um and I think one of the reasons so so I'll sort of say why it does why it perhaps doesn't challenge me as, as much as it might have done even a few years ago and then maybe say some other things about it as well so 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 I get, I guess the first thing to say is um that, that I've already read and encountered a lot of things like this so although Bart Ehrman is someone I haven't really looked at in any great detail I've, you know I've read a bit of Marcus Borg and a bit of John Dominic Crossan and um, Tom Wright and E.P. Sanders and all all these kind of people who've really sort of dealt with the historical version of Jesus and so this sort of this sort of gallery of Jesuses of which one do you pick I've been really really aware of so so what that means is that when when Bot Ehrman goes oh here's another one it's not as challenging as it would be if I had this one version of Jesus that was absolutely it and couldn't be doubted whereas I've been wrestling with this idea of who is Jesus for a long period of time so I so I think what's happened to me it's not so much that it it cracks my current belief it's that it, it sort of opens up a possibility like that that will be the interesting place for us to finish tonight would be you know what possibilities for looking into this now am I now seeing what new questions has this posed for me that I haven't yet answered that I need to go on to answer? But but should I just say something about Jesus as the apocalyptic preacher because I think that that's quite an important thing because uh, as you know that I mean that's a super super reductive like historical reading of Jesus I mean that that's mega mega reductive and I can I can kind of see the logic of it I can see where where it comes from. And I guess if you were going to go with the sort of lowest common denominator of of all historians ever, what can what can anyone who isn't a mythologist, they believe Jesus actually existed. What might they say? um, He said, Um, actually, just as a side to this, this is have have you you encountered Pinchas Lapid at all, you've encountered this guy. So because just just as a complete aside to this, there's a Jewish scholar called Pinchas Lapid who back in the. 70s maybe wrote a book called the resurrection of jesus in which he argued that jesus did rise from the dead so he's jewish not christian so he argues that jesus rose from the dead um he's a good scholar it's a good book um but he argues that but that doesn't make jesus the messiah or the son of god um because ultimately the kingdom of god didn't come so weirdly he's like taking half of Ehrman's thesis which is jesus was proclaiming a kingdom that never arrived and then adds in, but he still did rise from the dead as well, (laughs) and like argues quite, so weird combination, so so what that means is when I'm reading this, I'm reading it in the light of lots of other people that I've read who've looked at the historical Jesus, and and I I guess one of the issues that all of that kind of raises for me, if we're going to look at the Gospels and go, these don't seem to fit together very well they seem to have different perspectives and sometimes they don't cover the same material and john seems to be off on a different planet altogether and seems to think he's making some kind of alternative french film with a voiceover instead of a life of jesus you know what what is going on here um I, i think you have to apply the same that same notion of consistency to the quest for the historical jesus as well and say if the quest for the historical jesus ends up with so many jesuses like not just Two or three or four, it ends up with 20, 30, you know, just so many different versions of it. Um it 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 leave weirdly that leaves me going, actually, you know what? Um, if we're that uncertain about it, then the gospels may not be, you know, they're not absolutely certain because they're not, but they seem to be, you know, in in my critical realist stance, they seem to be trustworthy enough to think. They're written by people who had faith and therefore believed certain things about Jesus to people who already have faith. I think the Gospels are written to believers really in that sense and therefore they're a good guide to living faith in that sense and therefore trustworthy. Really. So should, should we should we start with that? Let's, that's kind of my, that's why the, his kind of portrait of Jesus doesn't really affect me that much just because I've dealt with so many portraits of Jesus like that and when So many people who all come saying we've applied these really rigorous objective criteria, here they are. And then all those people end up in completely different places in terms of what they're saying about Jesus. Um, I, I end up, you know, if we were just going to be completely neutral about it, we have to say that that's all just as untrustworthy as the gospel themselves. So we end up with this flat playing field of all these different possibilities, because even the really objective criteria don't seem to lead to. Any sense of clarity. Don't know if you. That, that, so that's my kind of. So that's why the first bit of it doesn't really kind of hook me in, in that sense.
0: Interesting. I I feel like we could stay on this topic all night. Like this, this one point. Um, yeah. So I mean, I guess a question from that, which I, I don't want to answer, but I want to pose, and then we'll move on. Um, because I've got some more things to say. Would be kind of so. What basis do we then start from if we can't trust any of it? Like you, that. That's it. Then that's that's almost that's the bookends done, and we should park the oh. whole question of Jesus. Then you can't move on from there, Roger. You're kind of stuck, and um, we can come back to that. That's fine. But kind of what I wanted to say was, great, um, um, great question. Yeah, yeah. Um. So so Dale C. Allison has a really interesting book called. Um, the historical Christ and the theological Jesus, which that is the correct title, is it's, it's, it's a deliberate play. Um, and he in 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 there he almost kind of looks at the various sort of scholarly views of of who Jesus and, and Christ are and how we can begin to get back to it. And he talks about how he has presented Jesus in many many different ways before and how he he only ever really comes back to being able to see Jesus as an apocalyptic teacher in the first century in Palestine, and there is no other way to actually be able to frame him without adding theological narratives in so essentially what he's doing and you go 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 read his books on this but essentially what he's saying is from from the three synoptic gospels and some of john um we seem to be able to see snippets of apocalyptic teachings that were similar to that sort of time period so there's kind of 200 years before 300 years after there's quite a lot of different apocalyptic messiah figures who then kind of basically roam Kick their asses, um, but essentially he kind of says we, we, we can see Jesus really clearly in this light. It's like if you if you put him if you put a figure on stage and you shine different sorts of lights on him, which light most brings out the characteristics that you see within the, within the text that we have and. Essentially, Dale C. Allison and others would say that that is an apocalyptic teaching within the first century, and then from that point, you can then begin to try and try and move forwards. Um, and I kind of look at the texts and look at the evidences that, that are being brought forward by both Christian and non-Christian scholars, and they're they're mainly in agreement that. Jesus does seem to have been that teacher, and then, and then they add in the sort of theological frameworks to either make him into um, you know the actual Messiah or to make him into um, something subpar, essentially. And um, so I guess yeah, that I kind of I can't I can't see Jesus as anything other than an apocalyptic teacher because when you put him on stage and you shine a light on him, that is the best light for the person that we see in the Gospels. There, th- there is no other light that you can see him by that is as as clear and brings
1: out as many good characteristics. But so, so here's where I'd, I'd question that, is that um, for any really charismatic, complex character in history, there's absolutely no way you would say them were just one thing. You know, so you'd never, you know, think you could sum up Bob Dylan or Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Luther or any of these people by going, all right, we'll just put one light on them. That's the light. That makes sense of everything. I'm like, no, you want three, four, five lights. Otherwise, you really haven't got a complete picture um, of who this person is. I, and so uh, and so I guess like some of the historical scholars I, I would lean towards. Um, so firstly, absolutely Jesus is an apocalyptic preacher in many different ways, but I think he's really, really different to so if you think about the teachings attributed to Jesus, they are hugely different to the apocalyptic writings in Daniel or in Ezekiel or that come later in revelation like they're really it's really, really different kind of genre. He's also really, really different to John, you know, so John the Baptist and he, you know, the clear kind of contrast being drawn between those in the gospel. And so while I I view the kind of apocalypse in him, so he's definitely talking about an aged come and something new coming. So I I don't deny that. Um, But I think you also have to see him as someone who's subverting that as a genre at the same time, Um, mainly because when you read um, many of his parables sayings the sermon on the mount etc if if we want if if you're happy just for a moment to kind of allow that those to be jesus um then it seems to me also that he's drawing on sort of hebrew wisdom um traditions as well so not just the the apocalyptic side of things and then the other thing he does an incredible amount of is concentrating concentration on compassion in the present moment not just about the end um so so Jose Bagola, the, the sort of Spanish biblical scholar historian, in his book, Jesus, A Historical Approximation, he he basically really, really clearly draws out all those kind of narratives and metaphors that Jesus is using that really are about the kingdom of heaven is here and now. It's, you know, that there's that sort of huge tension in Jesus about the kingdom of heaven having arrived and the kingdom of heaven not quite being here yet. Um and I think you have to have that paradox, In you know, from my point of view anyway, for you to have any kind of Jesus that looks like the one in the gospel for me, you have to have both those things. You have to have more than one light shining on him in order to really get him, in my opinion. I don't know what you make of that.
0: Yeah, interesting. I think, so, if you look at Jonah, for instance, so Jonah gets um, sent to Nineveh, I believe, to kind of tell them to repent, um, gets sent there, says, if you don't repent, you're all going to die, essentially, you know, God's going to come, his wrath will come upon you, etc., etc. They then repent, um, and, um, yeah... That, that's the story, essentially. Obviously, before he goes there, he gets eaten by fish and stuff. That's kind of sub-part of the point, actually. Or re- Really, the point is that that is what, um, that is what a, a um, apocalyptic sort of prophet would be doing. They'd be going from place to place, essentially saying that you are not living in the way the Torah and God command you to live. Change your ways or... God's judgment is going to befall you and you see that in Jesus' teachings even in the nice fluffy stuff you still see that core message of um, the weeping and gnashing of teeth those that left behind um, that the outcasts the sort of wedding feasts all these different parables there are there are the trickles and the traces of the the, the, the apocalyptic prophets telling people essentially God is God is going to judge you, and, and you who think you are saved, you have no idea of, of what is in store to you. I mean, people like even NT Wright would say, you know, that, that Jesus' most kind of um, crippling messages are for those that think they are the most righteous, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, I think the problem is um, you have to step back from. The gospels and you have to basically kind of draw the whole thing out and go, there is an individual somewhere in time, which I, I believe there was. I know people like Richard Carey would say that this individual kind of vanishes into smoke as well, and, and I, I'm doing more and more reading on that and I find it quite an interesting subject as well, like the sort of mythicism of Jesus. But say there is a figure in history who is a guy called Jesus, very, very common name, but also the the sort of figure that we see in the traces of the gospels. Give give the gospels some sort of fingerprints and say that they have a trace of this person. How do you know that this person is then abstracted correctly into narratives written decades after the fact potentially or well, definitely in different languages also potentially in different places by people who potentially never met the man and there's nobody in the Gospels who actually proclaims in the first person that I saw the risen Christ. Like, In fact, nowhere in the New Testament is there any first person I saw the risen Christ apart from Paul. And Paul's saying, I saw a apparition of Jesus essentially in this sort of light, light show on the road to Damascus. So what we come to, as far as I'm aware, is, is that we have this figure and the most sort of weight we can add onto their shoulders is this apocalyptic sub, sub, like pre-sub, um, and actually I would, I would very much argue that there's a really good chance that Jesus came from a similar school of teaching and ministry as John the Baptist, from the similar sorts of things they're saying, um, and even mm-hmm. potentially that Jesus might have come from a, from a pharisaical school, so, so something I've read before and something I mention quite often in the podcast is uh, that the Pharisees didn't follow people around in stuff like cornfields to go you're saying incorrect things, that's not okay like they only did stuff like that if they were trying to follow somebody who, who had a position of authority to start with, and they'd gone astray and started saying weird messages that were almost um, subverting their messages. They, they would wait until people went to the synagogues um, or, or even the temple itself and to, to debate publicly with show and spectacle um, about their knowledge and their wisdom about the Torah. But actually they were following Jesus around in the backwaters and um, trying to make him listen to them and kind of and, and, and you see that through the gospel I think that's a, a potential sign that Jesus either was an apocalyptic preacher they were worried about or he was potentially within some sort of pharisaical school and then became a, an, an, an apocalyptic teacher and was trying basically his message was subvertive to the classic sort of um, yeah authority Jewish teachings of the time so I mean it's, it's essentially that's how I view it there's this figure and you abstract out the gospels and you try and make the best sense of who this figure was that is the best we can do and anything else that you add in you've almost got to add it in with 20% the weight of that because it, you cannot you cannot link it back as far as I can see but I mean feel free to say I'm wrong and, and show me where but as far as I can tell there isn't there isn't a possible way to do that. Hey, I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting when belief dies. This will always be an advertisement free podcast and for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot there that that's kind of um, well said. I, and probably some of what I, I need to correct. And so so I'm not saying Jesus isn't an apocalyptic figure. Firstly. I'm just saying that I don't like the idea of reducing him just to that and saying that that's all he is. And then the second thing I would say about this sort of – so what you're doing in terms of you've got the Gospels and you sort of reduce them and you abstract them and you end up with that figure. You've got to remember that all the criteria that you're using to remove stuff from the Gospels to end up with this figure at the end, you know, that those are the criteria that I guess I, I'm in doubt about because this figure at the end ends up being so many different things. And if you end up with so many different things when you reduce the Gospels – are we not better to actually leave a lot of the gospels in place? Um, and then, and then the other thing in terms of, I, and I know we've gone round and round the houses on this is, is that, that the the gospels themselves and the Bible itself says that the certainty, or if you like the foundation of faith doesn't necessarily, it doesn't rely on, you know, is this true? Jesus says you build your house on the rock effectively when you put into practice my teachings. And for me, that's where I find the coherence and the stability of it all is that as I live it and I work it out and I ask questions about it and reading Bar Ehrman is part of that process of, is that this, you know, really trying to work out what works and what doesn't, but it's the living, it's in the living of it and the experience of it that then seems to match up, not just with the gospels and the new Testament, but with, you know, Christian experience through hundreds and hundreds of years, the more that I read it, that, that I end up feeling that's, that's where the stability that, that's the greatest level of certainty I could come to on it. But I only get that if I'm willing to take the journey that the Gospels want to take me on. Um, so so one of the criteria, interestingly, that very few of the sort of historical scholars talk about um, But it won't surprise you. Some of the ones who have a church base or a sort of theological commitment often talk about is they say it is a hermeneutic principle whether you think the community of believers now can be trusted. Because if if you think that the community of believers right now can't be trusted, are mistaken, have got it wrong, you then have to read that back onto history. Whereas if you hold the belief now that that can be trusted and it's good, you're more likely to go back and trust. The, the other stuff there. So I so I think this I you seem to be talking about history as if it's this kind of objective thing like we just pick it up on the beach. Whereas my view of it, the history is a dialogue between now and then. And even those constructions of finding the historical Jesus are laden with all kinds of assumptions that we have to we have to look at too
0: lots to unpack here. Um this might be this might be a, a multi-episode episode one which is fine
1: we might not get very far today.
0: no no but actually i think i think it's really good um i mean so i would say if you cannot look at the gospels and at least draw from it a um i mean I, I'm, you're, you're saying you can draw from it a, a apocalyptic jesus but if there are um if that is not your starting point, then we have a lot of issues. I'm mean, aware well, you're not saying that, but what I kind of hear you saying, and it'd be good to kind of delve into that a little bit as well, is um, there are other things that you see that you add weight on as well, um, and it'd be really good to understand why you add weight to those, um, why why you think they're true, why you think they're real, and I kind of referring to now. So as I mentioned right at the beginning, I came to Erman fully aware that humanity is flawed and its faculty to interpret and understand is mistaken more than not. I mean, even the fact that I'm looking at a screen full of pixels and think I see a person is not correct. If you look at a rock, there are more holes in it than there is solid matter. Like, like humans perspective and ability to actually know the, the truth and the reality of something is completely and utterly Just undermined at pretty much every single turn that that I've ever come across, and I've asked a deep enough question. It's gone, okay. Well, we're actually wrong about that, and we're wrong about that, and we're wrong about that. And so my question is, why couldn't Christians in the church right now all be mistaken, much like you would say, every single Muslim is mistaken or every single Buddhist is mistaken? Like everybody that is having any sort of experience or or believing in any sort of religion that isn't a, a, a sort of Kind of potential Yahweh figure within the within the heart of it. Even if they're a Buddhist, they believe they're meditating, you think that consciousness is linked to God. Whatever you're still kind of bringing this sort of thing. Like, why, why can't why can't every even atheists? Why can't everybody be mistaken at some point? And if you think if we start from that framework and we go, well, what is the best picture that we can have of Christ? Then it's an apocalyptic teacher who then his disciples began to interpret life after his death in specific ways which many books go into and I'm happy to go into as well but, uh, but my, 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 my question Roger really is how can you how can you be certain that anybody believes something that's true now and when you look at the gospels what else can you add weight on to the apocalyptic Jesus that is is anywhere near as as Co- collaborated, no, sorry, corroborated within the gospels as the as the kind of apocryphal uh sorry apocalyptic teach that, that jesus yeah. seems to be displayed as um, and then kind of also adding on to it the very very end would be um you know no go on just, just go for that there's too much here <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's, there's so much there isn't it um and and um but by the time you finished i'd lost track of what the first point was which i thought was really really good as well so let, let me pick up somewhere in the middle um so, so so as I'm saying so I'm not saying Jesus isn't an apocalypse. So I'm saying he is definitely declaring that, but I'm also saying that um he's subverting it. I'm I'm actually quite I think there is some good evidence, perhaps even that Jesus might have been mentored by John the Baptist. He might have been really, really deeply influenced by him. Um and um but but that then clearly goes on to to break from him um on some level. So so the, these are the principles. So The hermeneutic principle here that we're talking about in history is the principle of um, embarrassment, isn't it? So anything that's in the Gospels that could have embarrassed the early church that's still there is probably true. So that's one of the ideas. So the fact that Jesus was baptised by John is quite an embarrassment if you're later going to claim that Jesus is God. So it's it's probably true. Um, I, I I think the wisdom teaching of Jesus is probably pretty good, pretty true. I think the fact that he was some kind of healer and that he healed people from demons and things like that I think that is probably quite true whether it was as dramatic as sometimes it's presented whether it was as frequent as as we're led to believe I think that that could be questioned um but I also think that when you start to look at the sayings the parables all those kind of things of Jesus they have the grit and the earth of somebody raised in the middle east as a peasant you know they sing you know when you read people like Ken Bailey um, and other people who are really looking into the cultural origins. I mean, I just find it very, very convincing that, you know, Jesus, you know, he, he knew women who lost coins and went home in a house with no light and had to light a lamp to try and sweep away and find it. Um, I think the fact that he prized women it is, it doesn't seem to fit in very well um, later on. I think that's, that's probably, quite true as well because it doesn't really it's it's discontinuous with Judaism it's probably continuous probably with with later Christianity to some extent so that's something that Ehrman talks about quite a bit isn't it um so so I I don't know I, I I I guess I could almost pose the question the other way around which would be um it by, by what criteria do you start chopping things out of you know how do you know that this is in and that's out and you know what's the criteria you start using to that? and I guess that's my point really is that is that when I st- once you start down that line you start setting up the criteria by which to do it everybody seems to end up with really really completely different answers to what it's all about um So if you think about someone like Marcus Borg, I mean the idea of an apocalyptic Jesus almost seems to vanish in his understanding of jesus i mean it's still there to some extent but suddenly you almost have this sort of hippie let's all live in the present moment and find spiritual reality kind of jesus um and that's just one example of dozens and dozens and dozens over the last you know 150 years 200 years or so since people really started putting together these pictures of the historical jesus um so so i'm quite happy to agree that he you know the apocalyptic jesus is part of it but i just think he's you know the person of Jesus is much more multivalence than that now now just going so the the other thing you talked about is sort of bias and people being wrong and I I think that has to cut in all directions doesn't it really so it has to you know so one of the things I found quite surprising about Erman at times is once he'd argued for something in lecture two which I was still doubtful about from that point onwards he would then state it as if it was a fact with absolute certainty throughout the rest of the lectures i guess you know that's how you you build lectures that's how it works and i guess that's fine um but sometimes that would that would grate against me so sometimes his idea of he was a part he didn't you know he he wasn't buried in a tomb you know all those kind of things i was still in those questions really um And so and so I feel like that kind of question of could we all be mistaken has to cut to everybody. So it has to go to you and I and him and everybody we're reading all at the same time, as well as Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and whoever else we want to throw in. Um, So my my kind of response to. So one of my issues with kind of. The notions of heuristics and biases and myth busting and all that kind of stuff is that everybody I know who gets really into that stuff seems to love busting everybody else's myths, but don't seem to have the humility to go, but actually even my myth busting in and of itself, may be a myth. So, so, and this really applies to uh, how Jesus became God, because effectively what, what Eamon does is tell a really, really good narrative. It's a really, really good story just in the way that the Gospels are really good stories. But it seems to me that his story fits in much better to a naturalistic view of the world. So if you want to, you know, if Jesus isn't God, he's giving us a story that allows us to go, oh, I can see how this all fits together right now. Um, And so I I think we also have to apply the same criteria to him and say he's using heuristics, biases, He's constructing a narrative. That's kind of what makes him quite convincing. And that's what for me puts me in it and makes me think I, I want to kind of put my head in this and think about what possibilities it opens up for me. But I do think we have to recognise that. So one of the things I really enjoyed about it. I'll stop and then I'll hand back to you some. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed about it is that I did feel like I was watching um, or rather listening to someone who's doing something really, really clever. So um, whether it's a really good horror movie where you can see all the elements being put in place that will scare the absolute bejesus out of you down the road, or whether it's watching someone like, because I know a little bit of the hypnotherapy techniques that Darren Brown sometimes uses, watching the ways in which he's putting all the things in place that will lead to the outcome that he gets to. You have to admire the brilliance of those kind of things, even if in the end Part of it makes me a little bit suspicious and kind of like this is really, really clever and really, really good. But I do have to be aware that this is there's biases, there's generalisations, there's deletions, there's distortions, and there's a narrative going on here. And then I have to decide how much do I want to go with the narrative that I'm being given. Yeah, I don't. Sorry, I went on for ages then, Sam. So apologies. I don't know how you're going to respond. Pull it back.
0: Oh God, what am I going to (laughs) do? Help me, Lord. I'm sorry. So, okay, let's let's go back to basics then, so, well, not basics, but kind of back to the framework. So um, we have Jesus, who is a apocalyptic teacher, we believe, or at least elements of apocalyptic teaching within him. Um, mm. We have this person that we think said certain things, and there is grit within the stories. I agree with that. You talk about Kenneth Bailey, I believe, um, Jesus through Palestinian eyes and Paul through Mediterranean eyes. Two great books. Go read them. Um, not you, the listener. Um, so... Um, I, I don't disagree that there is grit in the stories that we hear how do we begin to understand what Jesus so this is a question for you Roger so I then give you four books that are the Gospels they are written many many years after decades in fact after the events um, the Gospel of John maybe 94, 97 um, CE potentially at like the very very end of the first century so you can see grit in these stories that you think potentially links back to this apocalyptic teacher. Um, How do you know that the other things in the Gospels are attributed to Jesus and not to theological stories or frameworks that have been Built up and grown around this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. So I agree that people very early on believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and that from that there was a spiraling effect of narrative and story and trying to read back into events and go, what did it mean when he said this fig tree could be cursed, or what does it mean when he said that this temple will be rebuilt or t- torn down and rebuilt in three days, or what, what does he mean by blah 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 blah? So these people were trying to outwork these theological ideas that Jesus might have said. So how 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 do you as a as a as a Christian, Roger, when you come to the, your Gospels, um, begin? to go no actually this is jesus rather than this is just a theological breathing of interpretations of the grit that you can also see scattered in the gospels
1: yeah um so 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 i guess firstly so as a christian when i read the gospels i'm not reading them as a historian so i think that's part of the confusion in our conversation perhaps is coming from that in terms of i read them as a person of faith looking to be directed into faith so i think that that's part of it. So, so I, I go in with that idea that whoever put these together, we're trying to lead people into an experience. Um, I, and I guess another way, another way of think. So, so for example, if you're reading, like if, if you're listening to Ehrman's studies on this, where he's really trying to talk about how each of them tries to talk about Jesus becoming God. So he looks at it through that lens. If you only look through the gospels at that lens, I think you miss lots of other things. Whereas my favored lens to look at them would be the lens that that i i date them exactly the way he does so i you know think he's pretty accurate in terms of how long after jesus they were written but but it's in the dating of the gospels that i think you get the sense of what's the existential issue in the community of faith that each of the gospels was written to try and address you know what what was it trying to do um so um uh, so so whether whether it's that that moment when the temple is destroyed, which, you know, and Jerusalem is besieged and finally destroyed, which roughly corresponds to when sort of Mark's gospel is being compiled and put together. And, you know, it's all about um, how how do we make sense of this big change that's just taken place? And if you look through Mark's gospel, this idea of a stormy sea on which Jesus keeps us safe and all that kind of thing seems to be this sort of big theme and everything's immediately. So it's like this has to happen now. It's happening now. And then you get to um, Matthew's gospel, which um, uh, roughly seems to sort of correspond to that, that period of time. Um, you, oh, so am I getting this? I'm, I might be getting this wrong, actually. Um, no, because it, it's sorry. So it's so it's Mark's gospels corresponds to the the persecution of nero doesn't it in the 60s and then matthew's gospel is the one that's more around the, the temple destruction yeah so nero 60, yeah.
0: 64 AD temple destruction AD, yeah. yeah or ce
1: and then and then luke's gospel comes a bit later and then john's gospel sort of um much much later on so it, the point i'm trying to make and i'm not doing it very well because i'm not putting the things in place um to sort of describe what i'm saying but my favorite way of reading gospels really is to view them as this is how all those sort of oral traditions were drawn together to confront particular issues whether it was the destruction of the temple that was distressing to everybody you know it was utterly traumatic and like felt like the end of the world to the jews um at, at that time or whether it's the persecution of nero or whether it's the the more established um element of the church that comes later uh, my kind of sense and this is sort of Uh, who's sort of you know there are various kind of scholars who've written about this but i i view them as not so much stages in trying to argue for jesus's divinity but more um trying to address particular existential issues that, that arose in the church particular concerns in life and that's why they still speak today and that's how i read them today so i don't read it thinking is this history I read it thinking, what kind of life is this now pointing me into? How is it telling me to pray? What kind of world do I live in? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm asking those kind of questions, a very existential sense of them.
0: So this is feeling, and I don't feel rude in saying this, but this is feeling very, very circular. So I'm going to explain why I think it sounds circular, and you can let me know why I'm wrong. So mm-hmm. it sounds like you're coming to the Gospels with a presupposition that Jesus is God and that you have a relationship with him. You're engaging with these Gospels, not necessarily trying to find a literal truth within them, but living out a theological framework that the Gospels are presenting in the person of Christ. And from that position, you're getting reaffirmation that your beliefs that Jesus is God – are being fulfilled in how you're interacting with the books, how you're interacting with Jesus in meditation, how you're interacting with the community of believers around you. And it feels like that is all just fueling itself. And what I'm trying to say is what I'm trying to do is step back and go. But how do we know that the bedrock it's built upon is actually true, that this person, Jesus, was God and that the claims in the Gospels are actually reliable and true? I'm saying we can't get that. That that doesn't seem to be an actual possible thing apart from experience and hope, and that that's why I left Christianity. That doesn't seem to be this this fruit, this bedrock, it isn't there? There is this sort of kind of snake eating its own tail, to use a wheel of time phrase, um, essentially. Where <laughs> it's very niche. Um, to, basically, you know, this is this is this is idea, and I'll say it one more time and pass it back to you. Where um, somebody a Christian has a feeling that they're interacting with the living God, and then they're looking at the Gospels and they're reading theological outworkings to various communities and various predicaments at various points in time to reaffirm their faith and to remind them of the truth and claims of christianity i.e you know christianity then i.e you know christ being being the risen messiah in various forms in the gospels and then they're getting confirmation from that and their experiences because humans are flawed me experience weird spiritual things all the time and therefore going back to their belief that jesus rose from the dead but nowhere as far as i can see is there actually proof or a claim that is substantiated to any sort of level of acceptable criteria that this is actually yeah. true there just seems to be theological hope I don't know Roger help me understand
1: yeah, yeah. so so we I, I mean we're we're in danger of sort of repeating ourselves and running into the same thing over and over again aren't we in in some ways um so, so let, let, let me kind of say something that I've, so, so I would view that all knowledge that wants to have a bearing on our, on our life you no, know, on real life, it is circular. It, it just is. So, so you have to start with an assumption about the way the world is and then live into that assumption. And my view would be if that assumption is realistic, then you'll find that living into it in some way works. Now, the, the thing that that makes it um there's a difference between something being circular, an experiential cycle of knowing and um, confirmation bias, for example. So you know people who have confirmation bias where they believe a thing and then they only ever take in information that confirms their kind of thing. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, you believe this thing and then you step out the door and then you discover you must have misunderstood some bits of it because they don't work. And then I, I... intentionally expose myself to all kinds of questions and queries and doubts and curiosities and explorations and so i'm constantly modifying that belief so so the way i hold my christianity now is really different than i did 20 years ago now i've really changed my views on a lot of things just because i was trying to fit it all together and make it work and and i wonder if one of the things that were kind of so so for me it's not so i feel that my christianity is actually quite certain and quite stable but there's no like it seems like you want the kind of the tower of whatever that you know what's the foundation of this tower whereas for me it's a system so it's a system of yes thoughts beliefs feelings experiences traditions conversations like it's a whole. it's an entire way of being and interacting with the world um That that I I, so if you were going to use kind of language from sort of chaos or systemic thinking, they'd say things like, you know, how do you hold a million gallons of water five miles in the air where you build a rain cloud? That's what you do, and and it 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 feels like that. So I I can see how from your point of view it looks completely uncertain because you can never quite, you know, when you're in a cloud you can never grab the cloud, but when you step back the cloud. Seems to work. And I guess that's that I, I don't know if I'm explaining this very well, but it seems to me that the system as a whole is really convincing, really adaptive. It really seems to work. And it seems to deliver all, all the things of it that were promised in the Bible. You know, so the Bible says if you live in this certain way, experiences of the Holy Spirit, you will see sort of these various fruits sort of develop um in life for you. And um, it it will help you in situations where you're suffering in terms of learning and how you become better in those kind of things i i tend to read most of the statements about heaven and eternal life in the, in the in the bible not as statements about life after death but really statements about quality of life here and now um so i don't don't really know if i'm answering the question but i guess what i'm saying it is circular but it's not a closed circle it's an open circle and the and that that circular thinking it can be confirmation bias, or or it can be fundamentalist, which is literally you just exclude any information that that doesn't. So it, well, so, so can I try this one with you, Sam? So when when I hear you talking about your process of deconversion, or I hear Daniel, who's your other kind of co-host, we discuss talk about it. Sometimes it sounds like. In the early stages of it, you thought that the answer to your doubts about the Bible was just more Bible. Like, let's just study the Bible, you know. So when, particularly when Daniel talks about his experience, he just went deeper and deeper and deeper into trying to find the certainty in the Bible. And I guess I start from the principle of that, that doesn't exist and that isn't there. You don't get more certainty just by going from a Bible. So sometimes I study the Bible a great deal. Sometimes I go months without looking at it at all and I'll be exploring other things there's sometimes when I know I've carried assumptions about certain things in the Bible that aren't true, but they're so stuck in my head, I can't get rid of it. I have to leave it for a bit and go and you know experience the love in the world in, in a proper way so that I can bring it back to that. Um, so all of that I'm saying to say, yes, I kind of acknowledge is circular. I think all experiential knowing is circular, including yours and including science. Um, I, and that some of the answers to that is probably humility and um and curiosity which is why when it comes to muslims or buddhists or whatever um i I, i'm not going to find myself saying lots of judgmental things about what they do or don't know because i i feel like humility leaves me to say i actually really don't know and my my friendship with buddhists and muslims you know has led me to think they're much closer to where i am on lots of things than than many of my more kind of secular friends would be um so yeah there we go (laughs)
0: There's so many grenades oh. that you just throw out eye to so <laughs> jump jump have on. You,
1: have you noticed how people on your podcast often end up apologising for waffling away? <laughs> um, it's like it's one of the features of when belief dies. Yeah, it should be called when people apologise yeah. for waffling.
0: <laughs> oh gosh! So um, just to pick up on the rain cloud analogy, and Daniel and me, and trying to find more Bible. So if you said to me, you know, how can you hold X amount of gallons up in the sky? and it's a cloud. The the, the reality is that I can go and look at the cloud, I can walk through the cloud, I can feel the air temperature change when I'm in the cloud, I can actually even separate out the cloud through different wind gusts, I can make parts of the cloud disappear, I can make parts of the cloud grow, I have the ability to interact thoroughly with a cloud. I can even make it rain under the right conditions and get rid of the water itself. The problem is you cannot do that with Christianity or any religious belief systems. There doesn't seem to be the ability to deep dive in and actually grasp it and this is this is what if it's true and it's tangible and it's real and it's based on a literal god loving and dying and resurrecting and wanting to commune and know his people surely like literally surely he would enable it so that people who needs to have a physical or a interaction or a, a certainty upon the very fabric of the existence apparently, which is what Christianity claiming it holds, um, to actually be true. Because otherwise, I could look at Islam or Buddhism or Judaism or Jainism or which, whichever ism you want to pick and go, well, they've just as much God what you have, um, and even humanism and the other these other isms still are trying to find. They're trying to find the same answers um, through different either spiritual or non-spiritual practices so i guess it, it, it just comes down to like it is if there is no bedrock how can you have any certainty that what you're professing to be true sorry what you're professing to be true um other than feelings and hopes that you hold which are just the same as other isms
1: yeah that, that's that's a great question sam and um may, maybe we can answer that next time shall we <laughs> um so, so just to say about the cloud i wasn't saying that um i mean you're you're kind of looking at the cloud as a material thing i was saying that the system of belief is like a cloud not that it's a you know so i'm saying when when you're looking for a bedrock that's why it's hard to find is because it's base. it's an entire system um that works like that um
0: but but a cloud yeah i mean i, I understood that but a cloud is a system that you can interact mm-hmm. with and you can you can gra- grasp like if anything is a system you cannot interact with that's when you need to be skeptical skeptical of it and go am i just believing this for false presuppositions Um, like Mm. for instance consciousness like we aren't fully aware or understand consciousness it's a system that we haven't fully grasped and anybody that comes to it saying it it is definitely an immersion property needs to be careful like anyone who says it is definitely a panpsychist property needs to be careful we just we just do not know or understand consciousness to any sort of level so we need to hold these things with almost tentative fingers it's the same with christianity anybody that tells me that jesus is god and rose and died and loves you and became alive again because God had accepted his death for your sins so that you can have some sort of relationship with him. I just call bullshit. Like, I just, it doesn't, I know I'm, I'm getting animated, but it, there isn't any actual tangible evidence for this. It's just words. It doesn't, it's nothing but words. There is no way to actually know that any of it is true.
1: So i i I mean in a sense you're right so in a sense you can't kind of absolutely land on it in that sense um but but i guess my i mean it's like really hard so when you're so the way the way it feels to me it is like this and i guess i i might not be quite slipping out of the objection you're raising but it feels to me like i'm really really enjoying playing a game of tennis and it's my favourite game and I really love it. And you're coming up to me and telling me um, you do know that the people who came up with the game of tennis um, were liars and it didn't actually look like this anyway. It didn't even involve a ball, um, etc. So you're kind of throwing all these kind of questions at me and I'm kind of so so enjoying playing the game. that I think, well, somebody came up with this and it really seems to work. And when I look through, you know, recently I've been reading sort of the history of Christian mystics, and there seems to be this incredibly consistent experience of God that particular individuals have had, all, all the way through, you know, since Jesus and and before then onwards. Um, that that I, I guess it's like, where am I going with this? But but basically, my kind of point of view is it it really really does seem to work and it seems to be that when i offer it to other people it sort of works for them as well but what i don't have is that i don't have a way of imposing it on you in a way that forces you to believe it you know so so the only thing i have to work with is basically anyone's curiosity or the sort of experience of god that they have to identify and and work with themselves so um, it's. It's, it's a kind of, it, it, like so, so I guess one of the things you and I might connect on, for example, is when you're talking about some of your experiences in meditation and things like that, th- they are my experiences of God. You know, they very much sound like that's what God is. And I find that the biblical stories are a really, really good topography of that exper- experiential landscape. I find that they match it really, really well um and in the end i'm kind of not responsible you know i i don't come out my first thing is i'm glad that that's true um what happens with buddhist muslims how they make sense of that that that's kind of another issue that i can think about in the immediate issue it's kind of being a christian is the thing that i want to do that's the that's the center of it i don't know what what am i talking about (laughs)
0: No, it's, it's helpful. I mean, I, I would like to go from the 10 minutes if you're happy to. I'm aware it's been a, a quite a tense conversation. Um, so I'll, yeah. I'll say this, and then feel free to say no, and we can literally pick it up from, from our next conversation. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. But w- what I'm hearing essentially is uh, the idea of tennis, for instance. Uh, it's absolutely fine. Go go play tennis and, and live your life enjoying tennis. Um, the issue is tennis doesn't have judgments and eternal consequences and money and judgment and I might have said that already, judgment's quite a big thing though, especially if Jesus was an apocalyptic teacher. Um and 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 this sort of um excessive need for somebody to believe it or something happens in some some sort of capacity. Um which Christianity does very, very I mean, for you it might not, and I think actually you're quite a without being rude like it, but I wouldn't view this as rude but you know, people might think it's rude, like calling you a liberal, I think you're fairly liberal in your Christianity. Um, which I think is 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 a good thing, but Tennis doesn't hold those things. Tennis is, you know, you know, it has a set of rules, and you follow them, and you enjoy the sport. And I, I love running with friends, and I love doing, you know, walking and all sorts of stuff. Like there are there are rules to running. Like I don't want to run twice as fast as my friend, or else we're not going to be able to chat. And actually finding a better pace with both of us where we stay fit is a really good thing. And that there there are ways we can amend this. But when you hear me talking about my meditation or psychedelic use or whatever it is that's kind of enabling me to um, deal with my consciousness, and you're saying it sounds just like Christianity. For me, it's almost like a. a screaming at you going of course it does because Christianity is just a meme or a heuristic which is enabling psychological outworkings to be held and processed effectively like that that is what Christianity has been built for that's what that's what all religion has been built for and you know you kind of maybe say Islam, Buddhism let's put it to the sidelines but many of the many of the ancient Buddhists have really crazy like batshit crazy things about supernatural stuff which i don't understand but they also have some extremely incredible wisdom to be shared around consciousness and the ability to let go of things and actually really really healthy stuff i know we both had kind of hard weeks at work and and some of their sort of teachings really does feed into that sort of um the 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 transcendentary nature of of the reality around us and how actually we need to live more consciously within each moment to fully be able to articulate and 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 get through the sort of uh, mundane pressures of life that can easily crush and diminish someone. And um, so essentially what I'm trying to say with all this is that there seems to be a Christianity which isn't actually founded on something but gives a certain set of propositions which enables one to live in a certain way which might feel like it's healthy and useful and good much like tennis, but actually there are eternal consequences to not believing Christianity that which many people bring about or a judgment or whatever. And there seems to be other ways which you say sound like Christianity, but aren't Christianity, are much more sort of sceptical, held with tender fingers, trying to work out with tender fingers, trying to work out what's true, what's real, navigating this bit by bit by bit by bit. And it isn't a hard framework, and we need to allow that to be in place. And for me, all these things seem to reinforce that Christianity isn't true. It's just a a, a mechanism to enable somebody to experience something they hope is true.
1: Yeah so (laughs) (laughs) yeah so let's let's wrap up yes where do we go from there um because there's so many things you said there that that i wanted to pick up and then you ended on such a humdinger i i lost a track of what (laughs) what i was going to say um let, let me just let me just um recoup there for a second um So um I'm trying to pick up the, the things you said yeah to just just, repeat a little bit of what you said again because i i had some things to respond to and i sort of lost it at, at the end
0: R- right at the start it was about tennis essentially yeah. just being a game and you know christianity having more sort of eternal consequences um based around that and then you mentioned sort of um other religions being parks and i said actually there are many good teachings in other religions um jainism for instance has some amazing teachings buddhism yeah. i've already mentioned uh, and then i moved on to kind of talking about um let me see if i can get this now um essentially how my meditative practices should scream into christians faces that what they're experiencing isn't christianity it is just a mememic state of understanding consciousness and well-being yeah great yeah
1: thanks sam that that helps me um so so, so I, I guess the analogy let's just start with the analogy of tennis is that what, what i was trying to kind of get at there isn't so much that christianity is the same as tennis is there's lots of other things but that for me it is a practice thing so it's kind of um it involves a community it involves thinking it involves belief it involves um emotions um and and therefore what i'm saying is that that um for me god isn't an idea so, so you quite often use the term propositions it's a set of propositions i don't in any way experience christianity as a set of propositions i don't experience god as an idea I, I am. Um, I mean, I, I, I would say I'm experiencing God every morning during my period of contemplation, which I would sort of separate from sort of other other forms of mindfulness in various ways. But, but then the other thing to say is that, that what has, what what has really gone missing? So, particularly in the kind of conservative Christianity, you would have been exposed to because it's re- it was completely destroyed because the Reformation sort of swept away so much of. Um, contemplative Christianity, particularly in Europe, um, is that when you look back through the mystic Christians and the monastic Christians, whether it's um, Benedict or Francis or Teresa of Avila or St. John of the Cross, um, these are people of really, really quite profound psychological insight. Like they, they rival Freud for their understanding of the human condition and what it's about. Um, and in that sense, they stand absolutely shoulder to shoulder with um, Buddhist mystics or Sufi mystics in Islam. You know, they they really, really have that that kind of view of the world. And I guess the, the way I view of it it, it, it isn't so much that I believe something about God, and then I have to act on it. So it's not like I have a theory of what God is, and then I have to apply that in the world, which is the way some people see it. It's that, that the bible points me into the idea that there is a real god that can be known and i i would argue that bit by bit step by step i come more and closer and closer to knowing that god in my experience and that the more i go the further i go into that experience and it's not necessarily just prayer it's through psychotherapy through um you know various different meditative practices through scripture reading and through elements of worship through friendship and family family life, like the, the more I kind of step into that, the more it seems to me to be accurate. Um, and therefore for me, like, so so I kind of feel like the way you're saying is you're not certain about this, so it's not true. Whereas my view is I'm not certain about it, but I'm pushing into it and going further. And so I guess it it is in a sense led by hope. But but it's not like there's no experience this side. It's not like I keep going thinking God, like one day I might find God, I'll keep going. I feel like bit by bit, you know, all these sort of signals go off that tell me that I'm kind of communicating with God, getting closer to the reality. Um, And one of the things that that's probably quite true with that is that anyone who pursues that line whether or not they call themselves a christian seem to have pretty similar experiences and what that means is we end up back with the line that christians love to pull but i think it's it's just true it is that truth is truth wherever you find it just as love is love wherever you find it that um that there is it it doesn't surprise me that people who meditate in any tradition come up against the same kind of sense of being and background to things and it's that background to things that i would say that that is god that that sort of ground of our being that is what i mean by god that sort of horizon of what i can know and then that that's what then makes me feel like the gospels are an incredibly great spiritual guide for finding your way into those things I don't know know if I've even vaguely got close to the questions you're asking, but
0: it's helpful. And this is the last thing I say, then we can, you can say something and we'll we'll call it, but I I still feel like there is a cart before the horse. I know I mentioned that before, but it's a slightly different context where um, Christians look at contemplative practices or they look at meditation or whatever and go, you know, truth is truth wherever you find it. Um, And what I'm trying to say is um, almost how dare you say that it's Christianity that is giving that truth. How 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 like if nobody knows that it's true, but you live in a certain way that suggests it's true, it doesn't mean that it is true at all. All that could be happening right there is that you are living in community, you're focused together, you're directed, you're meditating, you're living a life as if something's true. That doesn't mean it is actually true. It could just be that. I mean, I'd I'd even grant you, I I will happily grant you a god, Roger. There's no issue with that. Have have a god. That's completely fine. The center of everything, there is a god now pin it to christianity pin it to jesus like how like you just you just can't there is a cart
1: before the horse because there is no way of actually being I, able to I go I, I just don't understand the question Sam. so here, here's what i don't understand the question because like my i say so i know we're talking carts and horses and you're seeing the cart before the horse and i'm seeing the cart and the horse going around in circles and changing and becoming other things as they go along but what i don't understand about the question is that so that like what It sounds like you don't buy the idea of an experiential circle of knowledge, like that you don't buy this idea of we have a belief, we try it in reality, we come back, we change it a bit, we try something else, we go on. So what I'm saying is I read the Bible, try it in life, seems to work, doesn't work, either the Bible's wrong or I've misinterpreted it, come back to it, have a look again. And that's the cycle I'm on. So it's constantly evolving, constantly changing um and at any point kind of an experience could come in and uh, so you know so i've shifted hugely on some of the things i believe over the years so and we haven't really got into any of these things recently um you know so so i've shifted hugely on my view of hell i've shifted hugely on some of my views of sexuality you know so and and for good reasons because of that kind of experiential cycle of kind of coming back and saying hello um but 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 j- just to go back to how dare i call it christianity what else do i call it if that was the hypothesis i was testing you know so i wasn't if I'm testing a psychological hypothesis i don't then go oh this was a hypothesis i picked up from biology you know it was a it's psychology so that's what it's like a christian hypothesis i'm testing and what i call the experience of testing that is christianity like what, what as, as, as far as i
0: can see that it, it isn't christianity you're testing you're testing what works in reality and then claiming that it's christianity you're reading the bible and testing it and seeing it's not working coming back to the bible reading something else trying that testing it doesn't work like you know that a thousand times eventually you'll find something that works you're then claiming that that is christianity like you, you should be able to read a text and it says yep. this this is what christianity is go and live it and experience yeah experience the god that's there but that's not what's happening that the car is right yeah
1: yeah so exactly. so i exactly see yeah i see what you're saying now um and and that is a fundamental difference in our conceptualizations of what we're doing and that so so this is exactly the thing that i spent my entire undergraduate years arguing with conservative evangelicals about was that they had this view of christianity where it's this set of theories we all have to learn growth in christianity is just knowing more of your bible Um, and then living life so often that just had no consistency with what they knew so it's like God becomes an idea that you're constantly trying to apply but you never change this bit like this remains as you call it bedrock all the time never change it never alter it I'm like that is completely unworkable and the Bible tells us that we know That we're living Christianity correctly if it shows in fruit. So if you become more gentle, you become more loving, you become kinder, you're heading in that direction, you're probably on the right lines for what Christianity is supposed to be. So I come to the Bible with the assumption right at the start, with your idea of bias that I don't understand what this means. I probably haven't got it right. So all the time I'm trying to look at it fresh. That's my basic way of reading the Bible is. I probably don't get this. I'm probably getting it wrong. And even when I'm getting it right, I'm probably just like 20% on the money, you know? So, 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 uh, so and I think that's one of the reasons why we're getting so stuck is because my view is that in conservative Christianity, the Bible and its interpretation just get stuck together. It's like the oldest trick in the book. This is what, this is the trick that Calvin used to play all the time. He'd come up with all his interpretation of scripture and then he'd say, This is the biblical view, and so I got so sick of conservative evangelicals at university telling me that I wasn't biblical when I was reading the Bible more than they were and thinking about it more than they were. And what they're really saying is it doesn't match this interpretation, which we we call this the Bible. Whereas I'm saying no, here's the Bible. It says these things, but we read it with biases, heuristics, generalizations, distortions, and the only way we can find that is when we test it in real life. So. What that means is the Bible isn't, you know, I don't know it certainly. I'm moving towards understanding it more certainly as time goes on.
0: Okay. So (laughs) there is many more things I want to say many many more things i think we we've 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 touched very nicely there on on a on a chapter close and i think um just to just to prime the next conversation the sort of area that i i'm very interested to look at but we'll see off offline we can chat things through and work out where we should go from here but the, the area I'm, I'm really interested to look at is um as a i'm gonna call you a i'm gonna call you a liberal christian now Roger um as a as no, a don't. liberal
1: christian oh, that's awful trade. <laughs> um, you know why I don't like liberal or progressive? Go for it. It's because this this is what this is what conservative evangelical Christians it's the terminology they use to call other people not proper Christians. Call so it's a... the idea that we're, we're the real Christians, yeah, and these are the people who've gone off it. I hate you know I don't know maybe maybe don't even call me a Christian. <laughs> wow! <laughs> it, work. it works, everybody. So fireworks, happy. fireworks away.
0: Yeah, um. Okay. So okay. Fine. The, the the Christianity that you are you are testing and living out and seeing if it works. I guess when I point to things like Islam or Buddhism or whatever, um, I'm saying to you like other people I know other people in these religions who are doing the same thing they're coming to their texts they're trying them out they're seeing they fit if they don't fit they're reworking it they're making it fit they're they're and they're essentially allowing um life and their texts to work in 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 harmony to enable them to see the fruits and see a positive change in their life and I kind of want to go what an agnostic or a skeptic or an atheist would say is um prove that these texts are from a god, and then I will live as if they should be in harmony with this world. Um, and that's another massive conversation, which I'm sure we can get into. So that could be a, that could be a really interesting stepping stone. It could be the wrong place entirely. But let's have a conversation around around that off air. Um, Roger, is there anything you want to kind of recap with or say at the end of this um, exchange? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, this this has been really good, Sam. And um, I know one of the things that you've been saying is you wanted to pin me down for a while well done. you. I, I felt very much pinned down today. And um, I, I think the, the only thing I should say is that that when I came away from Bart work, the, the kind of query that we've been landing on today was the possibility that I was holding on to, which is, let's say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And that is a psychological experience. But nevertheless, once you allow for that psychological experience, it all still works. That's the kind of question I came away from is, I feel like I live daily in the power of the resurrected Jesus, but what if that is just a psychology experience that can't be rooted into history? Um, and I come away with that as a as a query. So this is where the tennis analogy comes in. I'm still going to carry on playing tennis, but maybe tennis isn't what I think it is. So I'm kind of open to that that question.
0: I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To leave any comments or thoughts, you can head over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.